This episode of Virtual Criminality contains spoilers for the video game Untitled Goose Game. Welcome to Virtual Criminality. I'm Ian Higton, and in this podcast, I combine two of my greatest passions, video gaming and true crime. Each episode of Virtual Criminality will focus on a different video game villain, and I'll be presenting their fictional stories as fact in the style of a true crime podcast. That means, along with all the usual in-depth analysis that you'd expect from a real-world true crime podcast, there'll also be times that we get to explore not only the fantastical, but the supernatural too. So, if, like me, you're into true crime, video game lore and creepypastas, you, my friends, have come to the right place. When a small rural community is left in total isolation after a vehicle collision blocks the only road in or out of their village, all hell breaks loose as a violent psychopath is allowed to run rampant. For eight hours, this monster was free to terrorise the trapped villagers, leaving a trail of destruction in its wake as it indulged in a catalogue of crimes, including property damage, vandalism, theft, intimidation and multiple counts of aggravated assault. But the most shocking fact of all is that the police have never been able to bring the culprit to justice. In today's episode, I'll be taking you through the events of that terrible day in detail, using exclusively obtained footage from the two police air support units that were deployed to track the horrible menace down. And so, with all that said and done, welcome to Virtual Criminality and the story of the unsolved goose crimes. The morning of Friday the 20th of September 2019 was particularly lovely in the picturesque village of Rybrook in Suffolk. Uniquely situated in the middle of a large meander of the River Rye, Rybrook was almost completely encircled by this rapidly flowing waterway. So much so, in fact, that the only way in or out of the village, other than by a risky water crossing, was via a thin country road that was barely wide enough for two normal-sized cars to pass each other by. Running through the centre of the village was a small offshoot from the river that was simply known as the Brook, and this wound its way gently southwards, creating some stunning nature spots that attracted many a waterfowl and fishermen alike. With barely any houses in the village, one pub and only a couple of shops, you'd be forgiven for thinking that Rybrook had little to offer anyone but those who made it their home. But its unique location, quaint village hall and its lovingly maintained, award-winning model village did still attract the occasional tourist, who wanted a glimpse of the England that you might have seen in Enid Blyton books. To back this up, Rybrook was even rated amongst the 20 most beautiful villages in the UK and Ireland by lifestyle travel magazine Condé Nast Traveller in 2018, and its model village, which comes complete with a medieval castle at its centrepiece, was described in the article as worthy of a fairy tale. However, at approximately 11.30am that morning, 999 operators received a call from a member of the public about a disastrous turn of events that was about to turn this fairy tale into a nightmare. According to the caller, Aaron Bell, a driver for the brewery company Adnams, there had just been an accident involving his lorry and a car on the road into Rybrook. 
Bell, who was on his way to deliver some kegs of ale to Rybrook's only pub, the King's Head, told the operator that a Fiat Punto heading out of the village had swerved to avoid what he said looked like a big white duck standing in the middle of the road. In an attempt to avoid a head-on collision, Bell swerved too, but this caused his lorry to topple over onto its side, blocking the entire road and pinning the car and its two occupants underneath. By 12pm, police, fire and ambulance crews were on the way to the scene of the accident, but due to the cramped nature of the conditions, the process of freeing the driver and the passenger of the car and unblocking the road was due to be an incredibly lengthy one. For the time being at least, Rybrook was completely inaccessible. No one could enter and no one could leave. Time ticked by slowly as fire and ambulance crews attempted to rescue the occupants of the Fiat Punto, but as they were trapped on the village side of the road, it was a struggle to get the equipment needed past the large lorry that was causing the obstruction. These complications were already enough to put a huge amount of pressure on the emergency services, but then, whilst the rescue teams were still hard at work, 999 operators received another frantic phone call, but this time it came from within the isolated village. The call made at 2.23pm came from 67-year-old Dan Golding, the groundskeeper in charge of maintaining Rybrook Village Hall's garden, which was located at the rear of the building. Mr Golding tended to the garden all year round and, along with trimming its border hedges, he also used it as a place to grow both vegetables for Rybrook's Harvest Festival and a selection of flowers that he would enter into the yearly Suffolk Flower and Garden Show. All in all, it was a peaceful existence for Mr Golding, but, according to his phone call, on that day, the unthinkable had happened. Somebody had broken into the garden and stolen a large variety of his personal items and gardening tools, including a Swansong brand portable radio, a thermos flask, a digging shovel and a pair of Fulston brand hand shears. Worst of all, though, was that Mr Golding was sure that he had almost caught the thief in the act, and, if he suspected correctly, they were still somewhere close by, watching his every move. Without any accessible routes into the village, police dispatchers were unable to send a patrol car to help Mr Golding track down the thief and secure the area. So instead, they contacted the National Police Air Service Operations Centre, which swiftly deployed an air support unit from Enpass North Weald, the base closest to Rybrook. Every Enpass helicopter is equipped with a state-of-the-art thermographic camera that is able to record and retain footage for evidential purposes, and we here at Virtual Criminality have managed to exclusively get our hands on the raw, never-before-seen footage from both Enpass helicopters that flew over the village that day. And so what follows is a detailed account of the terrible crimes that they witnessed. The helicopter footage begins at 3.32pm with a close-up of Mr Golding, the groundskeeper who had made that panicked phone call to the police about the robberies. Mr Golding, who is wearing a tweed flat cap and a pair of waxed canvas dungarees, can be seen carrying a rake which he then rests against the neatly trimmed rectangular conifer hedge that borders the top of the garden. The police camera then follows Mr Golding's movements back from that point, tracking him as he slowly saunters past a thick bed of potato plants and down towards the bottom right-hand side of the garden. 
Suddenly, and rather unexpectedly, a large white goose emerges from the mass of potato plants, and it stands there for a few seconds, fixing its cruel beady eyes onto Mr Golding's back as he inspects the flowers growing in a pair of raised planters. Mr Golding seems oblivious to the threat, though, and soon he begins to move again, this time cutting across the centre of the garden towards the left-hand side, where his rows of vegetable beds can be seen. As soon as it sees Mr Golding on the move, the goose springs into action and darts towards the rake that the groundskeeper had just placed down. Upon reaching the rake, the goose then clamps its bright orange beak onto one of its prongs and begins dragging the tool down towards the bottom of the garden. This callous display of rake theft seems to have been more than enough to convince the tactical flight officers on board the Empass helicopter that they'd found their culprit, as the onboard camera begins to focus solely on this heartless goose. Completely blind to the heinous crime unfolding behind his back, Mr Golding continues to tend to his vegetables, while the camera follows the goose as it yanks the rake down a simple stepping stone path towards the bottom of the garden. As the goose arrives at the end of the garden, it passes through an open gate set into a low brick wall and it emerges out onto the public land behind, which is a beauty spot that the locals often use for picnics during the summer months. After crossing over a public footpath and passing between the old stone Rybrook Village War Memorial and a wooden park bench, the goose quickly reaches the bank of the brook, which it then enters, pulling the rake along with it as it goes. As the first of many crimes caught on camera, this brazen act of vandalism is a sign of things to come, and it renders the half-submerged rake sodden and completely useless. Any attempts to recover it now would likely get the groundskeeper wet, but it's plain to see that the goose couldn't care less about this, as it barely looks back at the rake in the lake before it waddles out of the brook and back towards the open gate. As the goose re-enters the garden, it slows its movement down to a menacing waddle, and you can see its sinewy neck bending in the direction of Mr Golding as he ambles towards his pumpkin patch on the left-hand side. Something about Mr Golding's movements seem to trigger the goose, though, and moments after spotting him walking, it becomes hostile, charging at the groundskeeper with its neck bent straight out in a naked display of pure aggression. Somehow Mr Golding is able to dodge the first attack and this causes the goose to back off slightly, but it swiftly resumes its onslaught, circling the groundskeeper and flapping its wings in his direction, signalling its willingness to fight to the death. I've never been so scared, Mr Golding wrote in the Rybrook Village newsletter the following month. The beast had a look of pure hatred in its eyes, and the honking and hissing it made as it bore down on me will haunt me to my dying day. I thank God I made it out of there in one piece, as I truly believe that that thing would have liked nothing more than to tear me limb from limb. Faced with the very real threat of actual bodily harm, a visibly shaken Mr Golding tries to put some distance between himself and his attacker by making his way up to the top of the garden. There, near the garden's back gate, standing in the corner between a wooden shed and the conifer border hedge, was a large ceramic flower pot that, judging by the exertion Mr Golding shows when he lifts it, must have been rather heavy indeed. I felt like using the pot as a weapon was my only chance for survival, Mr Golding continued in his newsletter entry. I could tell when I locked eyes with that goose that it was either it or me, and on that day, I chose me. 
As if sensing imminent danger, the goose then makes a beeline for the mass of potato plants that it initially emerged from, burying itself deep within the tangled leaves, where it disappears from view. Scared and confused by the goose's unexpected vanishing act, Mr Golding drops the plant pot next to a wheelbarrow in the centre of the garden, but as he does so, the goose once again bursts from the potato patch and heads towards him. The pair lock eyes for a couple of seconds before, suddenly, the goose turns tail and cockily trots away, taking cover behind one of the raised planters that Mr Golding inspected earlier. More angry than scared now, the groundskeeper can then be seen walking past the planter to the right-hand side of the garden, where he stops and, hands on hips, surveys the area looking for signs of the ghastly goose. The feathered fiend, however, is far more sneaky than its unwieldy frame would have you believe, and it manages to remain hidden until Mr Golding gives up on the search and heads back towards his pumpkins, leaving the goose to retreat back to its hiding place amongst the potato plants. For the following ten minutes or so, the goose stays out of sight, silently watching Mr Golding from the safety of the undergrowth as the groundskeeper goes back about his business. But soon, Mr Golding makes a terrible mistake. As he goes to fetch a small carbon steel trowel that is resting on an old plastic chair in the top right-hand corner of the garden, he wanders a bit too close to the potato plants and unknowingly enrages the goose for a second time. As soon as the groundskeeper's back is turned, the goose can be seen pushing its way out of its lair, and then, following in Mr Golding's footsteps, it begins to stalk its prey, bending down into a stealthy crouch as the groundskeeper kneels on the floor next to his pumpkins so that he can dig away at the soil with his trowel. As the goose approaches Mr Golding, its movements become even slower and more methodical, and it begins craning its neck towards the groundskeeper's rear. At first, it looks like the goose is about to take a chunk out of the man's behind with its beak. This is something that would have caused a horrendous wound thanks to the serrated and spiky barbs that line a goose's bill and tongue. Instead, though, the goose reaches out and snatches at a keyring that's hanging from the groundskeeper's belt, removing it in the blink of an eye like a professional pickpocket. With the stolen item firmly grasped in its beak, the goose then runs back to its potato-based hideaway and buries itself inside, dropping the keyring on the ground just in front of its hastily created entrance as it does so. In a Sunday Telegraph feature from August 2022 titled Inside the Mind of a Horrible Goose, former forensic psychologist Jake Strasser states that the goose, and I quote, almost certainly wanted to lure Mr Golding over to the bush where it was probably planning to attack his hands as he reached for his keys. The amount of malicious scheming that goes into an attempted act like this suggests that this goose suffers from psychopathy, which is an informal term for a condition named antisocial personality disorder. Strasser goes on to say that the goose's actions throughout its full rampage show a complete lack of empathy for others and a lack of remorse too. Not only that, but the subject in this case also seems to relish in the misery it causes and that makes it an incredibly dangerous individual indeed. Mr Golding can then be seen entering the frame from the left-hand side, walking away from his pumpkin patch and towards the tall wooden gate located just past the potato plants at the back of the garden. His focus stays fixed on the gate as he walks towards it, but then he stops abruptly and pats at his hips. He's realised that his keyring has vanished. 
Although the helicopter footage is quite distant and not of the best quality, you can just about make out the movement of Mr Golding's head as he glances to his right and spots his keyring lying on the ground next to the potatoes. And so, with a shrug, he walks over to them and bends down to pick them up. Now, perhaps the groundskeeper was too quick here, or maybe the goose was distracted in some way, but for whatever reason, the goose fails to spring its trap in time, and Mr Golding is soon seen standing up again with both his keyring and, more importantly, his fingers intact. The groundskeeper then resumes walking towards the gate at the back of the garden, where he picks up a crudely crafted keep-out sign. If that thing knew how to steal from me, vandalise my garden and attack me, then it sure as eggs knew how to read, Mr Golding writes in his newsletter post. And I wanted to make sure that this criminal element understood that it wasn't welcome anywhere near my garden. After pushing the post of the sign loosely into the ground next to the back gate, Mr Golding can then be seen reaching up and grabbing a small rubber mallet from the top of the brick wall that holds the rear gate in place. He then turns back to the sign and grabs it with his right hand, straightening it up in preparation for the hammer blow that will drive its post deeper into the earth. Mr Golding then raises the hammer above his head and, just as he's about to bring it down onto the top of the post, he jumps in shock, missing his swing and sending the head of the hammer crashing down onto his right hand at full force. Holding an injured thumb tightly, Mr Golding then leans against the garden gate next to him in an effort to fight against the throbbing pain in his hand, but as he does so, the unfastened gate swings open and the groundskeeper topples backwards onto the concrete pavement behind. Because the helicopter footage we obtained is silent, it's hard to know from watching it exactly what it was that initiated this terrible chain of events, but here's Mr Golding's explanation from the Rybrook newsletter. That horrible goose let out a hideous honking noise just as I was about to swing my hammer, and I ended up hitting myself square on the thumb. The pain was unbearable, and my thumbnail is still black. My wife even thinks it's going to fall off soon. Worst of all, though, is the fact that when I took my tumble, I landed right on my tailbone and fractured it. I haven't been able to sit down comfortably since, and the doctor says it could take months to heal. If only the police could catch this villain, I'd be the first to press assault charges if they did. After pulling himself to his feet, Mr Golding can then be seen hobbling off in the direction of his house in search of aid. But in his pain, he forgets to shut the back gate, and this gives the merciless goose the perfect opportunity to escape. And so, in the next few minutes of footage, we can see the helicopter track the goose as it makes its way up the path along the side of the old village hall towards Rybrook High Street, where more unsuspecting villagers await. For most people, the words High Street are bound to conjure up an image of a bustling town centre with rows upon rows of shops, but in the tiny village of Rybrook, the reality couldn't be further from the truth. Rybrook High Street is little more than a small triangular space, formed by a road that runs diagonally past a right angle of buildings. These buildings consist of Rybrook Village Hall on the left-hand side and an electronic shop and a general store that run along the top. Once upon a time, those two buildings formed a pair of semi-detached houses, but back in the 70s, both of these were converted into businesses, a fact that's backed up by the one-car garage that's attached to the right-hand side of the general store and now acts as its stockroom. But since then, they've served as the only two shops in the village. 
Running around the front of these buildings is a pedestrianised road, which does occasionally allow for delivery drivers to park close to the shops. But as was the case this day, it was mainly used by the owner of the general store as a place to set up fruit, veg, houseplants and bric-a-brac stores on various fold-out tables, shelves and handcarts. Finally, in the centre of that triangular space lies a miniature green that's just about large enough to fit a two-person bench and a bus stop sign inside it, along with a cast iron pump that used to provide the village with water, before modernisation turned it into the historical monument that it is today. It was 4.35 by the time the goose reached the corner of Rybrook High Street and, as per usual, it was rather quiet. Both Plaza Electronics and the Rybrook General Store were winding down for the day and there were only two people out and about on the high street as the goose approached it. One was Cherie Davidson, the owner of Rybrook General Store, who was slowly packing up the stalls in front of her shop and doing stock inventory. And the other was Will Cosgrove, a young boy who, after having finished school for the day an hour earlier, had come to the high street to kick his football around, as it was the only flat, relatively open area in the entire village. As the N-Pass helicopter circles the high street, it continues to track the goose with its camera, and the resulting footage shows it pass in front of Will as he walks towards his football. Will, wearing glasses and a school PE kit, doesn't seem to notice though, and so the goose proceeds to explore the high street, looping around the outside of the green and past Mrs Davidson, who was at the front of her store adding price labels to some of the newer items on her shelves. For a brief moment, everything seems calm on the high street, but all of a sudden, that peace is shattered as young Will approaches the goose and accidentally drops his football in front of it. Upon seeing this sudden movement, the goose flies into a rage and spreads its wings out wide, focusing a flurry of pecks and bites onto the ball as poor Will runs for the safety of the village hall. Seemingly sensing the boy's fear, the goose quickly breaks off from the inanimate object and goes in search of something living to terrorise instead. Will, who presumably thinks he has evaded the goose, comes to a stop just outside the hall where he struggles to regain his breath after his panicked sprint. This is a grave mistake on Will's part as his back is now turned to the goose and he doesn't notice it moved down between the pump and the bench and back towards the main road where it loops up towards the boy in what seems to be a calculated attempt to flank the youngster and cut off his only escape route. Will spots the lumpy white menace hurtling towards him at the very last second, and he turns to run just as the goose is about to bear down upon him. Its wings are spread and its head is lowered, ready to peck at the child's exposed calf muscles as soon as he begins to slow. The ferocity of this attack is shocking to witness, and even though the footage is silent, you can practically hear Will screaming as the goose races after him in a concerted effort to tear beak-shaped chunks out of his flesh. Just before the unthinkable happens, though, Will manages to reach an old red public telephone box, which he promptly shuts himself inside. As the goose rages outside the phone box, we can see Will through the glass front, holding the door closed with every ounce of his strength. And even though the footage is too distant to make out the tears on his face, you can tell by the shuddering movements of his shoulders that he is sobbing his eyes out and in real fear for his life. 
The goose, however, is drunk on bloodlust at this point, and once it realises that Will has managed to escape, it spins on its webbed heels and heads off in search of another victim. It is at this point that the Suffolk police get their second phone call about the goose. Will, from the safety of the telephone box, is able to call 999, and he breathlessly pleads for help. There are no audio recordings of this call, but there is a transcript which reads, Will, I need the police. Operator, where do you need the police? Will, Rybrook High Street, please come quickly, I'm being attacked. Operator, who is attacking you? Will, a horrible goose. Operator, are you injured? Do you need an ambulance? Will, no, I just need help. Operator, I have requested blue lights, but the road into the village is currently blocked and emergency services are struggling to get through. Are you safe at the moment? Will, I think so. I'm in a phone box. It's walking away. Operator, please just stay right where you are. We will have help with you as soon as we can. It took less than the length of this phone call for the goose to find another unfortunate victim on the high street, and in the next chunk of helicopter footage, it can be seen quietly sneaking up on Mrs Davidson, the owner of the general store, with what looks like murderous intent. Mrs Davidson, who is unaware of the danger she is in, is casually sweeping the road outside of her store as part of her daily pack-down routine. The goose, which had been using a large pile of toilet rolls and a rustic wooden standing chalkboard as cover, is literally one or two feet away from Mrs Davidson when it finally confronts the woman, squaring up to her and honking in her face. To Mrs Davidson's credit, she's only momentarily startled and is able to quickly defend herself with her broom and she pushes the goose away with it in a bid to keep as much distance between herself and its ferocious maw as possible. Unfortunately for Mrs Davidson, however, this show of force only serves to antagonise the goose further, and it lunges at the head of the broom, clamping its beak down onto it and shaking it angrily like a rabid dog tearing into a fresh piece of meat. With the pair now locked in a life-or-death struggle, it's easy to see why Mrs Davidson told a reporter from the East Anglian Times that in those brief moments she saw her life flash before her eyes. If that had been her leg that the goose had latched onto and not the head of the broom, the injury sustained could have easily been life-threatening. And, as if to prove this point, the tussle comes to an abrupt end as the goose rips the head from the broom in a powerful display of force. And it then drags it off into a nearby front garden and the helicopter loses sight of it. Thirty minutes later, the goose reappears on the high street, presumably emerging from whatever hiding place it had stashed the head of the broom. Once more, it moves towards Mrs Davidson and her shop, but instead of continuing its ruthless spree of assaults, this time it seems like the goose has other plans in mind. At first, Mrs Davidson doesn't see the goose, but alerted by the noise of its big webbed feet slapping on the ground behind her, she turns to see the goose snatching a pair of Haggett & Hogg 3D picture viewer goggles from the top of one of her toy displays. Perhaps bored of attempting ABH on innocent bystanders, the goose was now spreading its wings and indulging in literal daylight robbery by blatantly shoplifting a toy right in front of Mrs Davidson. Seeing this, a furious Mrs Davidson picks up the now headless broom handle from the floor and gives chase, sprinting after the goose as it makes its escape with her property held tightly in its beak. 
Unfortunately, the adrenaline of the chase makes Mrs Davidson fumble and she drops the broom handle on the floor before she's able to use it to subdue the goose. Not one to tolerate thievery of any kind, however, Mrs Davidson continues to bravely chase the goose as it runs through the open garage door next to the general store and into the stockroom area beyond, where it finally relents and drops the 3D viewer onto the floor. Most of what happens next is obscured by the exterior of the building, but moments later we see Mrs Davidson walking back towards the entrance of the garage, 3D viewer in hand. Had the goose escaped somehow? Had she managed to incapacitate it before she recovered the toy? Those questions are quickly answered when the goose waddles at top speed from the back of the garage towards the entrance, where a pull cord for the door is hanging from the roof. As the goose passes by, it bites at the pull cord and, using its forward momentum, gives it a massive yank, which sends the garage door slamming down onto Mrs Davidson's forehead, before finally closing with a crash and locking the injured woman inside. For a few minutes afterwards, you can see the garage door vibrating as Mrs Davidson hammers away at it in pain and frustration, all while the goose wanders around outside, taunting her with a cacophony of loud honks. Although Mrs Davidson only gave one brief interview to the press in which she refused to go into much detail due to the trauma she sustained, we do know from police reports that were made public after the fact that Mrs Davidson sustained a nasty injury to her forehead following the impact of the garage door. After regaining her composure, Mrs Davidson is able to open the side door to the garage and she can then be seen unlocking a gate and re-entering the high street as the goose seeks cover behind a low hedge. Due to Mrs Davidson's unlocking of the side gate next to her garage, a new route through the village had opened up and the feathered fiend wasted no time in using this to flee the scene of the crime. The alleyway that the goose was escaping through led upwards and away from Rybrook High Street, where it then cuts left and runs between the rear of the shops and the back gardens of a trio of terraced houses. As the Empass helicopter follows the goose, the occupants of two of these houses can be seen out and about in their gardens, soaking up the sun and enjoying the fresh air, blissfully ignorant of the events that had just transpired on the high street. The goose, however, was now on a mission to terrorise as many people as possible, and at 4.58pm, the helicopter was able to observe it furiously smashing its way through the side fence of one of those terraced houses in order to gain access to its garden. The owner of that garden, Mr Inman, an elderly gentleman who is partially deaf, can be seen sitting outside next to a small iron table, totally engrossed in a newspaper as the initial breaking and entry takes place. Despite being hard of hearing, the commotion does seem to startle him momentarily, but after a brief glance in the direction of the noise, he shrugs to himself and goes back to reading, narrowly missing the goose as it sneaks towards him using a shrub as cover. From here, the goose quietly heads past Mr Inman and makes its way down a small flight of steps to the bottom of the garden, where it wanders around for a few moments, almost as if it's casing the joint in order to pinpoint more avenues for illegal activities. But then, all of a sudden, the intruder spots a shallow pond set into the ground in the lower half of Mr Inman's garden, and it makes a beeline for it, lolloping towards the water which it quickly enters with a splash. 
For a couple of minutes, it's as if a switch has been flipped, turning this violent criminal back into a graceful waterfowl, and it does a couple of small laps of the pond, stopping occasionally to let the cool water of the fountain run over its back before it whips its head upwards towards the direction of the helicopter. It's almost as if the sight of the helicopter snaps the goose out of its trance, because, before you know it, it's back out of the pond and racing full pelt towards the side fence that separates Mr Inman's garden from that of the middle house in the terrace, which is owned by local artist Helen Kiomini. The goose approaches a fence panel that looks to be held in place with a small yellow ribbon, and with an aggressively swift pecking motion, it removes the tie, causing the loose section of fence to collapse backwards onto the ground. Seizing its chance, the goose pushes its way through the newly created gap, and then charges at Mrs Kiomini, who had seen the approaching danger and was frantically trying to grab the fallen fence panel so that she could lift it back into position. The goose was far too swift though, and it can be seen launching itself at Mrs Kiomini's legs with a savage honk, causing her to fumble with the fence and almost topple over herself. To her credit, Mrs Kiomini quickly regains her composure, and she manages to push the fence panel back into place, but this only serves to further enrage the goose, which is now trapped inside her garden. In what seems to be a bid to catch Mrs Kiomini's attention, the goose then bumps into a large garden wind chime situated on her lawn, and as an alerted Mrs Kiomini then gives chase, the goose runs the full length of her garden towards a wooden potting table that's placed against the back wall of her house. As soon as it reaches it, the goose begins to tear the table apart, and as it rips out a large wooden drawer from the frame, the whole thing crumples to the floor as a distraught Mrs Kiomini can be seen rushing towards the wreckage. This causes the goose to bolt off in the opposite direction, where it waits for the heat to die down behind an old bathtub that has been repurposed into a flower bed. But then, instead of resuming its attacks on Mrs Kiomini, the goose spots a hole in the fence panel behind it, and it uses this to cross over into the final garden of the terrace, which belonged to the McMaster family. Now, I say belonged, but the McMasters actually sold their home and moved away from Rybrook only a couple of months later, after they realised that living there served as a constant reminder of the torment that they endured that day. As crime was almost non-existent in Rybrook up until this point, many of the homeowners who lived in this idyllic sleepy village, the McMasters included, would happily leave their doors wide open, safe in the knowledge that nothing bad would ever happen there. But all of that changed, of course, when the horrible goose barged its way into the McMaster's home via their open back door and did something so despicable that it ensured that nobody in the village would ever leave their doors hanging open ever again. Michael McMaster, who was interviewed by the Ipswich Star the following day, told the paper that he was upstairs with his wife changing their newborn baby while their youngest son, Ben, aged six, was downstairs playing with his train set. All of a sudden we heard a terrible commotion and then Ben started screaming, Michael is quoted as saying. I ran downstairs just in time to see a ginormous white bird wreaking havoc in my living room. It had already smashed up Ben's train set but when I got there it was tearing lumps out of our brand new sofa with its nasty little beak. I tried to shoo it off but it struck out at me with its wings so I grabbed Ben and carried him upstairs where we all barricaded ourselves in the bathroom. 
When the noise of honking and destruction finally stopped, I came downstairs to a scene of absolute devastation. Plates and glasses were smashed in the kitchen, the flat-screen TV had been pushed over and destroyed, the sofa and cushions were torn to shreds, and, worst of all, this monster had defecated all over our living room carpet. My wife is in bits. I honestly don't know how we're going to get over this. This textbook example of property damage was over in just under 10 minutes, but during that time, the helicopter stayed hovering over the house, waiting to see if the goose would emerge. With a maximum endurance time of approximately two hours in the air, and with that time limit rapidly approaching, the pilot of the helicopter used this moment to radio and pass North Wheels to notify them that they would soon be returning to base, but not before requesting deployment of a second air support unit so that the goose could continue to be tracked. With its fuel running low, the helicopter was able to stay in the area just long enough to capture footage of the goose as it exited the McMaster house via the front door, where it can then be seen stealing a parcel that had been left on the doorstep. The Enpass helicopter then follows the goose as it drags the parcel down the front steps and out onto Pump Street, the small village road that runs in front of the house. From there, the goose pulls the parcel along the road towards a small bridge that runs over the brook. And then, just before the helicopter is forced to return and the footage ends, we see the goose unlocking a side gate to the brook before it spitefully throws the parcel into the water and then runs away without so much as a backwards glance. Former forensic psychologist Jake Strasser ponders these last few moments in another section of his Sunday Telegraph feature. The reason most types of media, such as films or TV shows, use the term psychopath rather than antisocial personality disorder is that it's easier for the audience to understand. When you use the word antisocial, most people would automatically assume that this describes someone who is a loner, someone who keeps to themselves. However, this is not the case in ASPD, he explains. When psychologists say antisocial in regards to ASPD, it actually means someone who goes against society, rules and other behaviours that are more commonplace. In the case of the McMasters, for instance, the goose walked straight into their house and instantly engaged in heavily aggressive actions, which is of course something that totally conflicts with social norms. This complete disregard for the rights of others is just one of the many symptoms of ASPD that the goose exhibits during its spree. But in actual fact, in just the ten minutes spent inside and around the McMaster's house, the goose almost completely ticks off the ASPD checklist. It displays the inability to distinguish between right and wrong, it has difficulty with showing remorse or empathy, it manipulates and hurts others, it has recurring problems with the law, it shows a complete disregard towards safety and responsibility, and it expresses anger and arrogance on a regular basis. The second air support helicopter arrives on the scene just after 6pm, but it doesn't find the goose until 7.05pm, after multiple emergency calls come in from members of the public who were reporting being attacked by the goose as it made its way along Pump Street and towards the King's Head pub, which is situated at the end of the road. 
Due to heavy cloud cover rolling in and the rapid approach of dusk, the light was beginning to fade over Rybrook, and so, in order to accurately track the goose's location in the lower light of the evening, the second N-Pass helicopter then switches to its forward-looking infrared camera, which gives the new footage that distinct black-and-white photo-negative look that you may have seen in police chase footage shown on TV. The helicopter's IR camera manages to lock onto the goose just as it begins a frenzied assault on the pub's owner, 57-year-old Stuart Gillespie. The heavy-set landlord could be seen attempting to block the goose's entry to the pub garden, and after a second or two, he is able to successfully shoo the bird away. This action drives the raging goose towards an unwary delivery driver, who had been stranded in the village since the road became blocked earlier that morning. As soon as the goose sees the driver, it charges at her, brutally biting at her legs in a series of attacks that are quite frankly sickening to watch. Shocked and injured, the delivery driver manages to grab a box from the floor, which she then attempts to use as an improvised weapon. But when the goose sees this, it retreats and once again turns its attention to the pub landlord. Many locals who drink at the King's Head have described Mr Gillespie as a lively, funny chap, but also as someone who has a fearsome temper when it comes to dealing with troublemakers. And we can see this temper flare into action as he suddenly runs out from the entrance of the pub garden and towards the goose that is now honking menacingly as it circles the area in front of him. Whilst a seemingly risky manoeuvre for the goose, it turns out that provoking Mr Gillespie was all part of its master plan. Heckling the landlord with honks and leading him away from the entrance to the pub garden then allows the goose to loop around a nearby parked car and, when Mr Gillespie's line of sight with the bird is broken, the goose makes a dash for the unguarded opening. From there, the goose heads straight into the pub garden and up to the outer decking, where the outside eating area is located. And here, it is instantly spotted by Stuart's wife, Susan Gillespie, who chases the goose and traps it underneath one of the wooden pub benches. Unfortunately for Mrs Gillespie, however, a diner who had eaten lunch there earlier in the day had dropped a fork on the floor in the exact spot where the goose was now taking cover, and the bird can be seen grabbing the implement in its beak before brandishing it like a weapon. Upon seeing this, Mrs Gillespie is rooted to the spot in fear for a couple of seconds, but she quickly makes a break for it, running back away from the goose towards the entrance of the pub garden, where her husband is still looking for the feathered trespasser. With Mrs Gillespie gone, the goose then re-emerges from under the table and begins to search for an exit, all whilst waving the fork around in its beak like an absolute lunatic. Obviously unaware of the extreme physical danger she was currently in, Mrs Gillespie appears in the footage once again, and despite the potential risk of being assaulted with a deadly weapon, her temper is just as hot as her husband's, and instead of cowering, she gives chase. Rather than attacking her with the fork, the goose is surprisingly startled by Mrs Gillespie's eagerness to fight, and, like a true bully faced with resistance, it backs off, running down the wooden steps of the eating area and into the pub garden, where it then escapes through a gap under the decking. Sensing that it may have bitten off more than it can chew, the goose evacuates the area as fast as it can, dropping the weapon as it hops the fence at the back of the pub, where it lands with a thump on a short path that leads to Rybrook's famous model village.
The model village itself is a gorgeous miniaturised replica of Rybrook and it features all of the major landmarks like the village hall and garden, the high street and the King's Head pub. There's so much personality to it too. Each area has dinky little figurines modelled after the actual people who live or work there and it's regularly updated by its sculptor Nico Disseldorp whenever there's a significant change to the village. The focal point, though, has to be the recreation of a medieval castle that is based on historical drawings and ruins found close by. The original Rybrook Castle was built by Henry II sometime around 1165 to 1173 as an assertion of monarchical power in the region, and while it stood, it would have dominated the River Rye. Now, however, only the foundations and a few crumbling walls remain. But Disseldorp's recreation gives you a great idea of how majestic that castle would have looked. The best thing about this miniature marvel, though, was the built-in clock mechanism that caused a tiny bell in one of the Castle Keep's main towers to chime once an hour. This was just one example of the amazing attention to detail in Disseldorp's work, and so it's no surprise that people would travel from all over to come and see this model village in person. However, it seems that not everyone was able to appreciate the exquisite craftsmanship on show. The goose, now visibly angry and probably quite embarrassed after fleeing from the confrontation at the pub, can be seen taking its metaphorical revenge on the entire village by striding through the miniature streets, ripping up everything that stands in its way. Model villagers are tossed aside or dumped into the miniature replica of the brook and a pocket-sized post box is torn from the ground and thrown carelessly against the floor. More items are destroyed as the goose continues to smash its way through the village like some kind of feathery kaiju in a Godzilla movie, including a tiny birdbath and painting easel. But the true destruction only comes once the goose finally reaches the model of Rybrook Castle. With a sustained series of hammering pecks, the goose starts chipping away at the model which smashes and crumbles like pottery under the weight of the blows. Finally, the outer shell falls away, exposing the wooden framework behind, which the goose then grabs and pulls at until we see the tiny structure begin to buckle around the base of the bell tower. And then, with one final strained pull, the goose tears a vital support beam from the building's frame and the tower collapses, spilling the little golden bell out onto the floor as the rest of the model breaks into pieces next to the goose's webbed feet. Looking absolutely overjoyed and proud of itself, the goose then snatches the bell up in its beak and begins carrying it back through the ruins of the model village. It rings the bell as it goes, like it's carrying some kind of trophy or reward for its dastardly behaviour, and it's around this point in time that the emergency services finally manage to unblock the road into the village. This allows the police access to the scene, and at 7.45pm, after almost two hours in the air, and as three police cars speed towards the King's Head pub, the helicopter calls in to request a return to base, before leaving the area shortly afterwards. When the police finally arrive at the model village, five minutes after the helicopter footage ends, the goose is nowhere to be seen, and the only record of its presence there is the trail of destruction that it left in its wake. 
After setting up roadblocks and conducting house-to-house searches that lasted throughout most of the night and into the early morning, Suffolk police finally admitted defeat at 11am the following day, when the superintendent in charge of the operation called a press conference and announced that the suspect had escaped and was still at large. The wounds of the goose attack took a long time to heal in Rybrook, and even though it happened years ago now, some of them are still visible to this day. Nico's repairs to the model village took a full six months to finish, but the bell in the tower no longer chimes. The Gillespies fortified their pub with anti-goose fencing, which robbed the building of its quaint charm. The McMasters, of course, moved away completely. Mrs Davidson's forehead is now scarred for life. Poor young Will has developed a crippling phobia of large birds, and Mr Golding did indeed lose his thumbnail. But worst of all is that the goose which terrorised the village on that lovely day has never been seen again, and as such it has never paid for its litany of crimes. It's almost like the fiend has vanished from the face of the earth, and this lack of closure has left the villagers unable to relax, and they are now living in fear that one day that horrible goose might return to terrorise them all over again. If you have any information regarding the whereabouts of the Rybrook goose, no matter how insignificant it may seem, please contact Suffolk Police immediately on 0891 32 32 32 or message them using the contact form found at www.suffolk.cops.uk. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of Virtual Criminality. If you enjoyed it, do follow at Virtual Crime Pod on Twitter, subscribe to this podcast wherever you can to hear the next episode as soon as it's uploaded, share it with your true crime stroke video game loving friends, and if you're feeling really generous, please do leave a review on your podcast app of choice. They all help to boost the visibility of the show. And talking of reviews, shout-outs to the following folks for leaving some much-appreciated five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts. Jim Jim Jimbo Jim, Jackpot666, JasonWeb71 and Delhi. thank you so much, you're all awesome. Oh, and before I go, did you know that Virtual Criminality is also a video series? I've used video game footage to turn every episode of Virtual Criminality into a true crime documentary, and they're all available to watch right now over on my YouTube channel, Platform32, a link to which I've included in the description for this episode. Anyway, thanks once again for listening. I'm aiming to be back at the end of next month with episode 5 of Virtual Criminality, so hopefully I'll see you then. 